0: You are listening to a Whitebridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Would you uh, continue in prayer with me? Let's continue in prayer. Father, we would just pause uh, even further and give our thoughts to you as we get ready to hear the word this morning. And uh, at the threshold of a new year, a fresh blank piece of paper that is on it and all that's going to be written, O Father, in the coming year onto our lives and all that you're going to do in and through us to use our lives to write the story of 2015. We pause, Lord, and what a mystery it is, your sovereign grace. And it makes us stop and think about the things you have for us. Oh God, for you are a God who loves to give good gifts. You are a gracious Father. and So Father, as we we think about that, we, we would lean heavily upon you this year. We would lay all of our burdens at your feet. We would lay our lives in your hands, Lord, to do with us what you want. For you are a good God. Lord, would you help us to understand and be comforted by knowing you better. That in one year from now, Lord, when we gather on the first Sunday of 2016, that we will look back and say, oh God, you've been so good. And Lord, you who search the hearts of all people, you know what that looks like for us. You know the way we would love for you to answer our prayers, O God. And we also submit to you, and we know that you know best. And uh, so give us the grace to take the long view of our lives. Even as we think about getting ready to study the life of David and, and taking the long view of your working in his life, we pray that we would learn lessons of faith that can be applied. Pray for our loved ones, God, that we are burdened for. We pray for them, that that you might meet them in their need. And we pray for our own lives, that we might be worthy of your name. Lord, may we know you better in this coming year than we've known you in the past year. Not only your, your severity and your mercy, but also the severity of your anger. How you hate sin and how you love sinners. Lord, that we would understand that you are an unguessable God, that we do not know what you will bring into our lives in 2015, but you are a good God, and we can trust you. Lord, may we know you better in 2015. Lord, there's something about you that's so comforting when we get to know you, and yet there's something so unsettling as well. And so, Father, in the comforting and in the unsettling ways that you show us, help us to always know that you're good. We ask you, God, to use us to touch this world as well, this neighborhood, this city, this province and country and the world, Lord. Would you use us to make an, a difference, to bring mercy to and justice to the nations. Christ, would you be exalted in our living and in our giving and in our our ways, all our ways? And so we give to you White Ridge Baptist Church. As a family, we come before you, the father of lights, and we pray, Oh God, do your work in this dark world through us this year. And so, Father, from the very micro to the very macro of our lives, we give them to you. We ask you to be glorified and hear us in this prayer and help us to hear you as we listen to your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to call 2015 the year of David. And the reason is because our moderator's name is David. No, that's just, we're just kidding, no, the reason is because we're going to be studying David all year long. In fact, between now and uh, the end of May, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel, covering the first half of David's life. And then for the summer months, June, July, and August, we're going to look, uh, take a break. We're going to look at the book of James in the New Testament. And then beginning in September until the end of the year, we're going to look at 2 Samuel, which accounts for the second half of David's life, essentially when he is crowned king over Israel and Judah, and we see him live out his days until he dies, the end of 2 Samuel. And so uh, we look forward to that, a close-up look at someone who's called a man after God's own heart. We're going to look at some of his humility and suffering, some of his responsibilities that God put upon his shoulders, the failures that he endured, the obscurity of his life sometimes, as well as the great fame of his life at other times. And in all of the stuff of David's life, we're going to learn something about our own lives. Alan Redpath has written this, that the conversion of a soul is the miracle of a moment, But the manufacture of a saint is the task of a lifetime. So as we get the longer view of David's life, we're going to take a look at where our lives are in that and find, I believe, great faith lessons. Today, we're not going to be starting with 1 Samuel today, but next week we will. And today we have to do some context setting. Because if you'll remember way back, last year was all about... Paul's epistles. Last year in 2014 we studied three of Paul's letters, Ephesians, Titus, and Philippians. But if you go back further than that, in 2013 we ended looking at uh, the life of Joshua and the book of Joshua. And if you understand redemptive history chronologically you would know and you'd be thinking, well let's carry on this year with the book of Judges then. And today we will be, but we're going to just be taking one Sunday right now, to look at Judges, and then we're going to jump forward to 1 Samuel and look at the life of David and and, and consider all the things that God has for us to learn there. The the book of Joshua ends and the promised land is being uh, conquered. The land is being divided up tribe by tribe, each each of them with their inheritance. And then as we see the life of Joshua end, we... We see that his last words are all about going in and taking the land and fulfilling the promises of God. You know, it's very interesting. If you study Old Testament history books, the first part of the Old Testament, you will see that there is this this dying of a servant of God at the same time as the raising up of another, another servant. Genesis, for example, ends with the death of Joseph and the birth of Moses is where Exodus begins. Joshua begins with the death of Moses, and the call of Joshua is already upon us in in chapter 1 of Joshua. And then going on, we see 1 Samuel, Eli dying, and Samuel being raised up. 2 Samuel, King Saul and Jonathan dying, David being raised up. 1 Kings, David dying, Solomon being raised up. 2 Kings, Elijah the prophet dying, Elisha being raised up. But in Judges, we don't see that. We don't see that in Judges. Joshua dies at the end of Joshua. Joshua's death is talked about in Judges chapter 1 and 2, but we don't read about any successor. We see this break in leadership. We see this vacuum of someone to fill the gap and to lead the nation. And Judges has incredible lessons to teach us. And so would you take your Bibles at this time and turn to the book of Judges chapter 2. Have you ever been to a place where there is, is an information center before you see the whole museum or the, before, you, before you see the whole historical monument or landscape? And you go to the visitor center and in the visitor center you get told all about what you're going to see if you visit that museum or if you visit that that uh, monument and so on. That's what chapter 2 in Judges is all about. And so to get a summary of the land of Joshua, the, the the landscape of Joshua just look at chapter 2 and we're going to begin looking at it in chapter 2 verse 1 and we'll begin with verse or sorry chapter 2 verse 6 judges chapter 2 and verse 6 would you stand with me to hear God's word after Joshua had dismissed the Israelites they went to take possession of the land each to his own inheritance The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath-Hares in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. And after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up, who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook Him and served the Baal and the Ashtoreths. And in his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around whom they had no longer able to resist. And whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. They, yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. May God bless his word. You may be seated. The name of the book of Judges comes from verse 16, where God, it says, raised up judges who saved Israel out of the hands of those who were raiding the country, the the landscape. There are 12 mentioned in the book, and... uh, It probably covers just a little over 300 years, the book of Judges. And most likely, uh, most of those years were covered with either warfare or the threat of warfare, with intermittent peace when a judge was raised up as a warrior and Israel could follow that judge. It is a heartbreaking time in Israel's history. Heartbreaking because in this period of history, it chronicles the life of a people who had been showered with grace upon grace and yet upon in response to that we're spiraling downward toward apostasy with each generation after Joshua probably priests and scribes kept a record of all the things that were taking place during this time and then under the king under king david likely samuel the prophet before he died compiled all that history and we have a, a semblance of that in the book of judges right now And so it's a a, a sad time. It's also an interesting piece of Scripture because in in addition to violating all the covenant commands and and promises, um, it also prepares us for the king time. It prepares us for this time of the kings um, because indeed one of the verses that recurs throughout the time of Judges is four times actually is kind of a summary verse the very last verse of Joshua or Judges 21 verse 25, it says, In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. And four times the, the writer gives that verse as a summary of the period of the Judges. At, this, at that time Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. What a commentary on a society gone bad, gone mad, with sin. Many of you will recognize the familiar words of William Henley's poem Invictus Out of the night that covers me black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. The message of judges reveals the folly of that poem. The theme of Judges is the danger of succumbing to your own wants and desires shaped by the sinful appetites within you and the culture around you rather than living according to the Lordship of God in your life. And Judges shows us in history the fate of every believer that has accommodated his or her life over and over again to sin and to society to become like them. And one day, as God's word is clearly saying, to be then given over to that very thing that you've pursued more than God. To be given over by God to that very thing. And then be judged in that sin that you have been given over to. It is a scary period of history. And yet the book of Judges also shows the incredible mercy of God over and over and over again Moses in chapter 17 of Deuteronomy verse 14 warns Israel he says when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it and you say let us set a king over us like the nations around us be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord chooses he must be from among your own brothers do not place a foreigner over you It goes on to say then that the law of God is to be upon this king, with this king. He's to read it every day. He's to lead by it. He's to govern by it and so on. And and yet Israel did not follow that way. Joshua as well, Moses' successor, before he dies also issues a warning. He sets up a stone. It's called at the the place called Shechem. He sets up this stone. He says, This stone is a witness against you that today you have vowed that you will serve the Lord your God alone. And they say, Yes, this stone is a witness. We will serve the Lord our God. And yet, within a generation, they have fallen away. There are many lessons we could take from the book of Joshua. I'd like our judges, I would like to share two or three key lessons. And the first one I'd like to talk about is the need for separation from the world. Seven times in chapter one of Judges, between verses nineteen and twenty or thirty-six, the writer stresses that the tribes of Israel were not able to or were not willing to supplant and move out the Canaanite peoples. Instead, we read that they chose to, to dwell on the land with them. Now, this, was, this, this command that God had to absolutely drive them out or annihilate them if necessary was not because of geographic reasons or pragmatic reasons, but rather there was a theological and spiritual necessity in God's command of such an extreme and severe nature. He was not primarily concerned about the military threat of the Canaanites, though that was much greater than Israel alone. He was concerned about the spiritual cancer that the Canaanite peoples would bring to Israel. And one of the things that we miss when we take up our Bible in English and read it in the 21st century without an understanding of some of the depth of history and the culture and and so on of that time, we don't understand that the, the conquest of Canaan was an act of justice by God. We talked a little bit about that two years ago when we were looking at Joshua. This was not an innocent people. They were a vile and idolatrous people. And God made it clear that it was not because Israel's righteousness that he was giving them the land. In fact, the scriptures say there's two reasons why God asked Israel to go in and take the land. One was because he's fulfilling the promise to to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And number two was because he was finally, after many centuries of patience, going to act out justice and wrath upon the peoples of Canaan. They were awful peoples, In Deuteronomy chapter 9... Uh, Verse 4 It says, After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, The Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your forefather, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand, it is not because Because of your righteousness, that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. (laughs) I mean, in case Israel ever got there and saw, whoa, we got it pretty good here, aren't we wonderful? God was saying, no, no, you're missing the whole point of history, just like we would miss The point of our salvation, if we stand ever before anyone and say, I am saved, I know Jesus Christ because I'm better than somebody else. No, it is because of God's goodness and mercy snatching us from the flames that we have salvation. God was clear with Israel as he is clear with us. We don't have time to talk about Canaanite culture. Let it be said That they not only sacrificed children and humans in fires to false gods, but their sacrificing also led them to such idolatry of such a perverse nature that God had to act. They had the worship of prostitutes in temples. Baal, the primary god of fertility had a counterpart called Ashtoreth, many Ashtoreths. And Baal, this false god, would would have sex with the Ashtoreths in the heavenlies, they believed. And in order for that to be prompted, on earth, the, the males from the Canaanite cultures would go to the sacred temples and have sex with sacred prostitutes inciting the gods then to have that so that their land would then be fertile, their homes would be fertile, their wombs would be fertile. This is not just uh, ideas. This This is Canaanite theology. This is what they believed. This is what they practiced. And over centuries they had become so corrupt that God was going to judge them. Now what an allurement for Israel. You think about this, in Israel, a slave people for over 400 years coming out through the wilderness, entering the promised land, and this people are bigger than us. They have warfare that is beyond ours, like iron chariots and things like that. They have such wonderful fruit and vegetables in their land like we've never seen, and they're taller than us, and there is allurements not only in what the intimidation factor was, but in the sexual temptation. In just setting up shop beside them, instead of driving them out of the land, and so we see instead of Israel obeying God, we see instead that they chose to cohabitate. In some cases, they forced the Canaanites into forced labor, water carriers and woodcutters. In some cases, they they would stay in the hill country and let the Canaanites stay on the plains. In some cases, they even just got into intermarrying and becoming one people. And that's what Judges 1 begins to talk about. Moses says, way prior to this, in Exodus 34, he says, Be careful not to make a treaty with these people, for they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their asherah poles. Do not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. This is a good jealousy. This is the God that is jealous because He knows that that He has the best for your life. And the world and the flesh and the devil and all the false gods have nothing but to come to rob, kill, and destroy And so living with the Canaanites and forming treaties and intermarrying and dabbling in their religion, all of this the law of God warned against because separation, separation from the world has been a core value of Judeo-Christian faith from the very beginning, friends. Separation from the world is a core value of your faith. It has been like that from the beginning. The very word church, ecclesia, means separated ones, called out, called to be different, called to be light in the darkness, called to be yeast in in the lump of dough of leaven. And God has asked us to be that way. Because the world and its desires are passing away, but those who do the will of God live And abide forever. A man by the name of Fawcett said this He said, Our high calling is to be in the world, but not of the world. It is not our being in the world that ruins us, but our suffering the world to be in us. Just as ships sink in the ocean, not by being in the water, but by the water getting into them. It's a good illustration. And so we're called to come out from among them, be separate, be holy like your Father is holy. Second lesson I'd like to share with you quickly is, is about the severity of God. And when I say the severity of God, which rises out of His holiness, His holy character, I mean the severity of God in His mercy and in His wrath. This God that we have to do with is severe in everything He does. Nothing half-placed with God. He is a severe God. And we see this in Judges. This jealous God that He is. So intense is He in His wrath and mercy. There's a passage in Isaiah 63, verse 9. You might want to take note of it and and look at it later, but I'll just read it to you. Chapter 63 of Isaiah, and verses 9 and 10. Kind of a summation of this period of history. He says, says this. It says, In all their distress... God, too, was distressed. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them as all the days of old, and yet they rebelled and grieved the Holy Spirit. So he turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. you see the severity of God? You know, this this idea that he's going to go to rescue his people, but then he's going to be against his people for their good. If they will not turn, the book of Judges shows this severity. It shows that he's always reluctant to judge his people, always reluctant to bring judgment upon humanity. He would much rather see repentance and humility usher in God's blessing than rebellion and pride usher in his wrath. Let me say that again. God is reluctant. He would always rather see repentance and humility usher in His blessing than rebellion and pride usher in His judgment. He's always that way. He is reluctant. And so we see that the very thing that God does upon us sometimes grieves His heart more than it grieves ours. The very act of judging and disciplining His people... Breaks his, just like a child with his father or mother who's disciplining them. Just as a father or mother breaks their hearts to have to discipline their child because of the rebellion, because of pride, because of of whatever. It breaks our hearts. That's the hand of God. The very same hand, the very same hand of God that is merciful is going to be the hand that will bring judgment and discipline. The same hand. He's a good God. We see this in the verses that I read earlier. Chapter 2, verse 14. The the Lord's hand. The Lord hands Israel over to raiders. And two verses later, verse 16. The Lord raises up judges to save them out of the hands of these raiders. You see, he's an unguessable God. He, He... It's unsettling if you get to know this God. We think we understand God, but we don't understand God. For the rest of our days, we'll be learning more of the severity of his mercy. Why would you be so merciful to that person? Look what they did, confounding our thinking. Why would you not judge that people? God's ways are higher than our ways. I love the story of Chronicles of Narnia. And in The Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, there's a story, an interaction between Susan and Mr. Beaver about the Christ figure Aslan. And you've heard this before probably, but the the, the dialogue goes like this. Uh, Susan says this. She says to Mr. Beaver, oh, I thought he was a man. I thought he was a man, not a lion. And then she asks Mr. Beaver, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And then Mr. Beaver, wonderful words, theologically wonderful words, says this safe. (laughs) Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king. You see, have we not fallen into the same trap that Susan did? In thinking about our God in in anthropological matter and ways, thinking he's like man except better or bigger or stronger. No, he's nothing like you and I. He's not safe. He's severe. He's severe when he's merciful and he's severe when he's angry. You want to be on Aslan's side. You want to humble yourself before this God. That's what the judges preached for 300 years. That's what the prophets preached. That's what the apostles preached. That's what we need to preach. That's the gospel. That the gospel is that that this God who is so severe in his wrath against sinners is just as severe to those sinners in his mercy when they turn The last point we're going to just mention as we proceed on. And the last thing I wanted to say a little bit about was this idea of God being a severe God but a knowable God. In fact, not knowing God is the sin of sins when he's made himself known. And the very sin that God laid at the generation following Joshua was that they neither knew the Lord nor what he had done. Now, they knew about God. But they did not have a personal, experiential relationship and knowledge of God. And that is the critical piece that we read about in Judges. You see, God has no grandchildren. God has no grandchildren. Every generation must seek the face of God and know the Lord Jesus Christ for themselves. We cannot follow on the coattails of our parents' faith. There comes a day when we need to decide that I am going to follow this God because I have personally seen His mercy Experienced His grace, I know that I am a sinner in my own right and that no inheritance from my father or mother is going to save me. I must need and I must, I must follow Him. That's salvation. That would, have, that would have spared this next generation of Joshua's time from experiencing the terrible hand of God's wrath. Well, friends, as we turn our attention to to the Lord's table, I want to say to us today that this table is also a a depiction of the severity of God. The severity of God's mercy that He, for sinners like you and I, would, would take His only Son and offer Him as a sacrifice for sinners. And in like manner, the anger And wrath, and the severity of God's wrath, that he would see sin so vile that he would be willing to offer his son to obliterate sin and its consequences. You see, I think what what will surprise us until the day we die is how much God hates sin and how much God loves sinners. So let's gather around this table And let's celebrate what is the severity of God through Jesus Christ.